Hey, this is Current Yield Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Year. I am Jim Grant, uh, talking to you from upstate New York, a stone's throw from the Baseball Hall of Fame, Cooperstown. And uh, our special guest today is Jim Bianco, who's talking to you from the state of Michigan. But that is an area, part of the uh, contiguous Chicago Cubs zone. Eric Whitehead, the Man Control Panel, is uh, in Suffolk County. And Evan Lorenz, the great deputy editor of Grants, is talking to you from Brooklyn, where the Dodgers used to play. So that's kind of a baseball-themed introduction because there's no baseball. And before we get into the manipulation of the yield curve by the Federales, I would like to propose a project for the listeners of the Grants podcast, and that is to um, form an informal resistance to this notion that is now getting some traction that we mustn't sing or have choirs or let alone opera because uh, of the expectoration of the singing voices. Now, ladies and gentlemen, what is life about except song? Like nothing, right? It's not about yield curves. Well, it is about yield curves, but song precedes yield curves in the order of importance in living a human life. And here is what I propose. We all go online and familiarize ourselves with the great flower duet from the opera Lachme in 1883. And that is sung my favorite rendition by Sabina de Vielle and Marianne Crebassa, French sopranos, respectively, coloratura and mezzo. Go on YouTube, listen to it, and you will be activated to write to you know, Congressman Mayor de Blasio. Whoever is in charge of this cruel and unusual and most unhelpful notion that we ought not to sing lest we spit. All right, that is the opening rant. And I will now say uh, hello to Jim Bianco, who is the father himself of an operatic person, Christina Bianco. So, Jim, welcome to our podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So this, uh, so many good ideas come from Evan Lorenz, and this is one of his ideas. Let's have Jim, who is one of the most knowledgeable and most uh, most imaginative and helpful commentators on the financial markets doing business today, even when he's doing it from home or Michigan, even wearing a t-shirt or something, even in those circumstances, Jim Bianco was tops. Let us have Jim on the podcast to talk about what the Fed is up to now. The Fed is always up to something. So um, I'm going to begin, Jim, by asking, what is it about the yield curve that makes you think that the Hansi Fed is manipulating it? I think the the first answer is, is if you look at the yield curve, it's been in its surprising lack of movement and in yields themselves in their surprising lack of movement. Since April 15th, going on two, you know, six weeks or so, almost two months, the yield curve has barely moved within 10 basis points, plus or minus the 10-year yield has barely moved 10 basis points, plus or minus 65 basis points. So it hasn't moved much. It's gone sideways. Volatility measures like the CBOE interest rate volatility to move index, they're multi-year lows. If you were to look at interest rates and the lack of their movement, you would conclude this is somewhere in the middle of 2019. Everything's fine. There's nothing to see here. There's no reason to move interest rates. It's all good. You would not conclude that we were in the middle of one of the greatest economic stress points in American history, and that the U.S. Treasury Department was on the precipice of delivering $3 trillion of new issuance over the next three months. Let me just pause, interrupt you one second, Jim, to put that in perspective. Uh, So between 1789 and 1981, the United States amassed 
its first trillion in gross public debt for 192 years. Mm -hmm. Now we are doing that work in 30 days. Now, is that not progress? This is productivity, <laughs> gentlemen. <laughs> Yeah, it, it really is. It really is progress. In the in the yield curve, the interest rates themselves are barely reacting to this move. And if you would ask me the question why, I would say if you look at what the Federal Reserve has done with its balance sheet and with its purchases of uh, securities, it has done numbers that are hard to understand. Since the pandemic hit, since the lockdown started, the Federal Reserve has bought just 2.3 trillion, trillion with a T, dollars of treasuries in 10 weeks. They've added another several hundred billion dollars of mortgages and agencies. And that doesn't even get into the alphabet soup of things that they're doing with commercial paper and with ETFs and with corporate bonds as well, too. They are buying so many bonds right now that if you were to look at metrics like the Bloomberg aggregate bond market index, its size is actually shrinking this year. The bond market that is available for private sector investors is shrinking because the Federal Reserve has been hoovering up more than even we've been issuing. Now, the issuance is coming, and I have no doubt that the Fed will be there to help smooth that over. But I think the big reason that you're seeing interest rates being so quiet is we have a de facto yield curve control, a price-fixing mechanism by the Federal Reserve that while they talk about it, and John Williams, New York Fed president earlier this week, said that you know yield curve control is something that they're looking at. And I would argue, no, you've actually been doing it for six weeks now, and you're going to continue to do it as we move forward from here, that the driving force in the bond market to keep everything stable and quiet has been this almost unlimited ability of the Fed to buy up everything and anything in sight. Well, this is a new thing under the sun of finances, or not? I mean, there was, we had yield curve control, of course, during the years, I think 1942, I believe, 1951. 1951, it ended with a so-called accord. The Treasury agreed the Fed could uh, conduct an independent monetary policy. That was nine years during the war and during after the Second World War. But um, this is something a little new, is it not? Yeah, this is new in that, you know, in, in that yield curve control, it was a little bit more indirect. It was the Fed basically to, um, helping to set interest rates and issue bonds at a certain rate. This one is them in the market continuously as the single largest player in the market with the idea of keeping prices as stable as they can. They will buy when uh, markets fall and they will buy less. They haven't had to sell yet, but they would probably if they need to um, when um, markets rise too much, if they felt like they did rise too much. So, yeah, I, I don't think we've seen anything like this. The closest example we have is Japan. And I think the takeaway that I have about what happened in Japan with their yield curve control, which they instituted in 2016, is it didn't help their economy. It has still struggled along, and it's really hurt their private sector. The amount of volume and activity in their bond market is down by 75% over the last five or six years. There are whole days that go by in the Japanese government bond market where benchmark issues don't trade one time at all during the day. If you fix the price, eventually that price becomes the wrong price. And while people will recognize it's the wrong price and either want to rush in or buy or sell, there won't be somebody on the other side and they'll just lose interest in the market because it's not, it's not 
at the right price and they can't transact and they'll go elsewhere and you lose all of your liquidity. And that's what's happened in the uh, JGB market. And that is the risk that the Fed has if they want to continue for a long period of time doing this with the U.S. bond market. Well, there's also a risk of the uh, of the wholesale mispricing of credit, right? I mean, these interest rates are, after all, prices. They direct flows of resources. And the reason we have uncontrolled prices, supposedly, is that they allocate resources more effectively than do uh, uh, central control regimes. Why don't we call this what it is, which is price control? It, it is price control. And if I was to be charitable, I would argue that maybe at the initial outset of price control, that whatever price you fix it at might be somewhere near what we would perceive as fair value. Think Japan setting rates at zero in 2016. Well, if you leave it there long enough, the economies will change, fundamentals will change, investor preferences will change, but those interest rates or those prices won't change, and they will become out of line with the economic reality. And that's the risk that they will face, is that if you want to fix prices, then you got to fix everything else. And everything else isn't fixed, and nor can it be fixed. And so as the economy bends and folds and shapes and preferences change with investors, 65 basis points will not always be the right price forever and ever. Amen. It will eventually become the wrong price, and that will then create its own set of problems which I think will probably come a lot sooner than the Federal Reserve is anticipating. What kind of problems, Jim? I think the biggest problems are going to be a liquidity problem. I think that players, if you're going to keep prices this low and this stable and watch the economy go on an annualized basis, fall 30 or 40% and increase 20% in the third or fourth quarter, if we believe the consensus opinion and try and issue $3 trillion worth of securities at the same time. But the one constant is, they will always be issued at the same price or as close to the same price as we can, regardless of all those ups and downs. At some point, investors will start to realize that those securities are at the wrong price. I don't want to play. They'll leave and will then be stuck with something akin to direct monetization because the only player left that will be able to buy those securities will be the Federal Reserve itself. Instead of the Federal Reserve trying to direct the private sector to buy these securities at a predetermined price, they'll just leave. That's what's happened in Japan. And then it'll be left up to the Fed themselves to basically buy what the Treasury wants to issue. Uh, Jim, I'd like to go a little bit on investor preferences and liquidity. Uh, a trader in Asia told me that in the aftermarkets for the U.S., basically when Asia's up and we're asleep, Japanese government bonds are not the preferred security to settle trades. It's actually U.S. treasuries. And he said it's actually a little bit odd because it's easier to settle a JGB like, you know, at like 3 a.m. New York time than it is a treasury. In the U.S. financial system, we use treasuries as kind of the grease for our financialized economy. They can be pledged and repledged in finance parlance, hypothecated and rehypothecated to settle multiple trades. If they become less liquid and investors turn their preference away from them, what does that mean for our financialized economy? It has enormous consequences. You're right. There's currency in circulation is around, I believe, like eight, $900 billion of actual physical paper in the economy. But we need a lot more cash, if I was put that word in quotes, than just the paper that we, we printed up on. So we use treasury securities as a substitute for them. We borrow against them. As you said, we apothecate, repothecate them. This is a way of using these securities as a cash substitute. And they become, as you 
said, the grease that makes the economy go. If a company wants to send another company a billion dollars or $2 billion, they don't send them pallets of Benjamins, they send them treasury securities. Well, if we wind up having a liquidity problem that that idea of having repo and hypothecation become problematic, and we saw the beginnings of that last fall, with too much intervention by central planners in these markets. Then they will take the, the basic grease, to use that phrase you said, of the financial system, and they'll start pouring sand in it, and it will become a problem. It's not a problem now. It won't be a problem next week. But the longer we continue to decide that regardless of how much the world changes, interest rates do not, then they will become a problem as we go further down the road. You know, um, here would seem to be the setup at the moment. Um, our friends Gehring and Rosenzweig point out that uh, commodities with respect to stocks are at their lowest relative level since 1970. And I read in, in no less an authoritative source than Bianco Research that the forward multiple on the S&P 500 as recently as Tuesday was at a 19-year high and that, according to Bloomberg, about 12 trillion of securities worldwide are priced to yield less than nothing. So all that would tell me that, that the world collectively is assigning the risk of an unscripted inflation, that risk, at about zero itself. You know, yeah. I mean, you know, if you wanted to also take it to a further extreme, the, the Russell 2000 forward PE is approaching 40, which is almost twice of where it was at the 2000 bubble peak right now. I think what's happening in these markets as they continue, these risk markets, the equity markets continue to power higher is they're not viewed as markets anymore. They're viewed as markets with the big thumb on the scale of the Federal Reserve that will make sure that everything will work out in the favor of those that are long these securities. So, so Jim, uh, George Soros years ago uh, coined this $3 word reflexivity to denote the circumstances in which perception can become reality. Um, you know, it would seem that the Fed can change how things look, but not how things are except if higher stock prices themselves inject such a jolt of animal spirits, optimism, uh, what can do that the stock market leads the economy higher. What do you say to that? Is that a possibility? Well, I mean, that's the theory that they're trying to do. And I would say that, you know, what the Fed has been so successful that it was just the mere announcement on March 22nd that they were going to step in with all of this extraordinary action that has powered these markets higher. To date, they haven't even gotten into the markets for municipal bonds or corporate, bond, or corporate bonds yet. They haven't, they haven't started. And nearly two months later, they're still trying to work out the details and how they want to do it. It was just good enough on the announcement. And they're hoping that that will help markets move higher. But look, at the end of the day, they are supposed to be a reflection of the fundamentals of an economy or of a company. They're not supposed to be the cause of the fundamentals of an economy or a company. I think they got the cause and effect backwards right now. That's why we have the phrases overvalued and undervalued. Otherwise, in the Fed's world, there is no such thing as overvalued and undervalued. There is properly valued. And if we push the market higher, the economy must reorient itself to higher market prices. So you could never be overvalued or undervalued by their logic in the way that they're trying to do this. You know, the, I, I think the retort might be that, uh, you know, you commentators yourselves kind of fall into the hubris error because um, so often the market confounds you. 
uh, it would seem that the diversions between what's happening on Main Street, which is nothing much very good as far as one can see in the papers, on the one hand, and the stock market on the other, that divergence, they say, could merely reflect the prescience of all of these buyers and sellers seeing, as it were, around the corner or through a brick wall into the future, hmm. which raises the question, what is the information content of this stock market? What is it telling us? I don't think it's telling us a lot. And let me go to that, that they're, they're telling what those buyers and sellers are telling us about the future might be about the structure of the market. And let me give you a for instance. I've been noting that this market has a unique feature that the amount of small retail that has been plowing itself into this market has been unprecedented. I'll give you two quick statistics. Uh, Goldman Sachs has pointed out that 3% of all trades on the New York Stock Exchange are now for an aggregate value of $2,000 or less, meaning practically nothing, up from non-existent a year or two ago. 13% of all options trades in the United States are for one contract uh, as well, too. The amount of new accounts that are being opened by investors has defied what we've originally thought. We always used to think that investors were the chasing of momentum. But instead, what we've seen is in the month of March, when the stock market had one of its worst months in history, over a million new accounts were opened by small investors. And the second biggest one was April. And they are not only are they buying into the decline, they are buying with reckless abandon in the decline. And further, they seem to be the most interested in anything that is collapsing. So not only does somebody open an account with a few thousand dollars and what has been the driver of that, the change on the margin, has been the move to zero commissions late last year. So a $2,000 trade now doesn't have to worry about being chewed up by costs. And so not only that, but they're also seeking out stocks that are collapsing. So I'd, I'm going to open an account and I'm going to buy. What am I going to buy? Oh, look, the airlines are down by half in a couple of weeks. Buy them. Buy them because they'll get bailed out. Buy the banks because the Federal Reserve won't allow them to go down. Buy anything that is falling apart because that will give you the best upside opportunity. It, yeah, they do chase momentum and they die, buy high stocks expecting them to go higher. But what has been astounding is the amount of people that want to catch the proverbial falling knife. And for the moment, it's worked. And to their you know, credit, when you ask a lot of them that are thinking ahead, why do you do this strategy? Usually the words Federal Reserve come up into the conversation is meaning they won't allow me to lose my money, whether I'm buying collapsing oil prices or airlines or retailers or bankrupt companies. They won't allow me to lose my money. So go ahead and plow it all into um, Carnival Cruise or plow it all into Six Flags because they will do what's necessary. And Trump usually backs them up with a tweet to make sure that that turns around and I wind up getting a very good profit off of that idea. Oh, Jim, just two uh, things to add there. I threw out that retail were heavy buyers of Hertz as it was going into bankruptcy. And if you check robintrack.net, which actually tracks buys and sells on Robinhood, the trading network, they spiked up again after the company filed for bankruptcy. So retail is now becoming the equity investor in bankrupt companies. The other thing I threw out there is not all retail thinks that they're going to be bailed out by the Fed. A large portion, it seems like, or at least a significant portion, are people who are bored and have nothing else to do at home. There was an FT article recently about retail traders, and they said, you know, when I went to the track, if I made the wrong bet, I'd lose all my money. Stocks are great because if I lose a little bit, I can just trade out of it. You know what that betrays to me? It betrays a woeful 
lack of international awareness. For example, you could bet on baseball drafts, amateur draft in Korea, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, I, you know, you're, you're right in that this has changed and it's changed quite a bit. I'll, I'll, you know, throw out that along the way, the number one financial television show in America right now will probably surprise a lot of people if they're not aware. It is a guy named Dave Portnoy, who is the uh, founder of Barstool Sports, who sold a big chunk of it to Penn Gaming a couple of months ago. And on March 23rd, the day of the low, he opened up an account to start day trading because he didn't have the NBA or eventually the MLB to bet on like he did. He, he missed out on betting on March Madness. And he live streams himself yelling profanities at his computer, um, day trading stocks in and out all day long. And more people are watching that than are watching CNBC right now. And that he has mushroomed into the millions in terms of Twitter followers and has become kind of a Pied Piper of this new retail type of day trading small account type of person, almost to the point where, you know, the joke is, is that the bear market begins when the economy reopens and these people actually have to go back to work instead of sitting in front of their computer all along all day, punting stocks back and forth and up and down. But the numbers are truly astounding in what they've been doing. They're there in a big way. Now, they may not be as big as what we would know as traditional institutional investors. But prices are always set at the margin. And at the margin, there is a voracious bid by millions and millions of small investors that are playing this market to a degree that would is, I think, is greater than we saw back in 2000 with the tech stocks. You know, Jim, um, something that I return to this topic of inflation, which is the uh, something that Dave Portnoy probably doesn't get into a lot because it is simply not a money-making item of thought or conversation. It's simply, you know, it's a, it's a historic notion these days. But think about it. So the Fed is expanding its balance sheet, uh, that portion of earning assets called Reserve Bank credit, over the past three months at a rate in excess of 600% a year. Uh, M3, the broadest measure of money growth, is tracked by shadow stats, is rising in excess of 20% year over year. And the Treasury deficit is doing what we said it was a moment ago. It's, it's a trillion dollars a month. Now, these are magnitudes that would have uh, connoted hyperinflation or something. What's, what's an excess of hyperinflation? Really fast inflation. That only a few heartbeats ago in, in American history that would have been self-evident that's the outcome. But nobody talks about the risks of inflation, let alone the thing itself. What do you think, as somebody who's watched the markets and as somebody who looks in particular at the innards of the markets, is inflation dead and decomposing? Well, I, you know, I've joked that um, I believe it's, it's going to return, and I've joked that if it doesn't return off of this episode, we could delete the word from the dictionary. Because if we don't get it now, we're never going to get it. Because what we've got is we've got an intersection of two things happening. As of the latest numbers from the unemployment claims, for over 40 million people have gone on the unemployment. That's 25% of the workforce. We have a big decline in aggregate supply. If we got 25% of the workforce not working, we are making presumably 25% less stuff than we've made before in total. We've also been subsidizing those 41 million people plus everybody else to make sure that their aggregate demand can stay as high as possible. So even though you're, you're, you're not working, we do want you to consider buying a car, buying a house, continuing to spend money, even if it is online. And that if we're going to see a reduction in supply and an increase in demand, we are going to see higher prices. 
And I think that those will eventually come. Now, I don't suspect you'll start to see them in the second quarter, which is the current quarter we're in, or the third quarter because of the contraction in the economy. But once the lockdowns stop, there will be some type of a rebound. And if that rebound does not result in us going back to a 4% unemployment rate, it's going to result in less supply, and it's going to result in in artificially boosted demand, and I think we're going to get higher real prices off of it. And like I said, if it doesn't work now, I'm wondering if it will ever work again. And I, my bet is it will work now. Uh, uh, Jim, uh, one problem about inflation—sorry, uh, problem about inflation—is how is it measured? The Bureau of Labor Statistics has to assume people buy certain baskets of goods, but in the April print, CPI fell 0.8 percent month on month and rose 0.3 percent year over year. But if you look at all the categories that fell the most, it actually dragged it down. It was things like airline fares, lodging away from home, a motor vehicle insurance, things people did not spend on last month. And if you look at the food subcategory, it was rising at the fastest rate since the 70s. And Nielsen data showed in that month, I think, buying it from grocery stores was up 20% year over year. So uh, the things that people were spending on last month actually had a fair bit of inflection. It was the things that people didn't spend on that didn't have any. Right. And I think you're going to start to see a reversal in a lot of that stuff. Let's take the airlines, for instance. Airline prices are almost back to where they were you know, pre-crisis or pre-virus. And the reason that is, is because the supply of air, air travel is way down. It's down 80%, 90%. So what they've done is they've taken all the airplanes out of service. They're sitting in the desert right now in Arizona. And so therefore, whatever's left, you, you're going to be paying something similar to what you were paying pre-virus. I'll give you one example. I'm in Chicago. There was 50 flights a day between Chicago and New York City, uh, one of the New York City airports. I think we're down to eight or nine right now a day. And that's why the prices are back to where they were before. So you're going to see in the economic statistics a rebound on air travel and everything else because those prices are coming back up. Well, one final question. You ought to be the Fed chairman, but you're not the Fed chairman. So I want you to imagine that fellow. And uh, let us say that the CPI no longer prints at its customary 1.92%, but say at uh, three and a half to four, and then maybe four and three quarters, some numbers that begin to make eyebrows lift. And you are still seeing to it that the 10-year Treasury yields 60 basis points. What does the Fed do in the face of an unscripted, even if potentially desired, inflation? I think initially, um, if you were to see Neil Irwin's column in the New York Times this week, might have even been today as we're speaking, the takeaway of his column was a rise of inflation is a good thing, and it's a sign that things are getting better. So I think that their reaction to inflation would be joy, that they would think that they are really doing a very, very good job. It's only when we get to the, um, you know, Yardeni bond market vigilantes that the bond market actually throws a fit over inflation. And we see even the Fed incapable of holding bond prices in line. And that is possible because there is one thing that is bigger than the Fed, and that is the collective of the bond market. Well, the bond market always isn't collectively of the same mind, but if we do get inflation, they might get collectively of the same mind and throw a fit and then rise interest rates despite the Fed trying to fix them. And then you would have a problem on your hands. So I would say that in the early stages of inflation going up and eyebrows being raised, they'll view it as a success. And they'll think that they want more of that and that that is a sign that the economy is returning to some level of normalcy. Only when they've gone too far and the bond market will signal that, well, then they start to worry. But at that point, by definition, it'll be too late. Well, speaking of late, um, 
we all have something to do the rest of the day. I'm not sure what that might be. Evan, are you, are you working today? Uh, from home, yes. Uh, that's the correct answer. Eric, how about you? Are you uh, pretty busy, are you, are working from home? Yes, yes, I'm pretty busy at uh, at home working. See, Jim, that's that's how we run this ship here. It's, it's, a, it's kind, of, kind of the honor system. Hey, Jim Bianco, thank you. Jim Bianco, thank you for being with us today. And uh, as always, we, I mean, your stuff is just terrific. So um, thank you not only for your presence on this call, but also for what you do for a living. Ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for listening. We will be back, uh, we hope, next week with uh, Current Yield Grants Interest Rate Observer of the Air. 